0: Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. I am your host, Jude Brewer. Coming up in one minute is a story told by Kim Barnes, with original composition by Pretty Gritty and Brian Dast. And if you stick around until after the credits, you'll get to hear some cool behind the scenes info on how this episode was made. Here we go.
1: Hungry for the world. December 24th, 1978, I lay on my couch trying to concentrate on whatever sitcom David was watching in order to keep my mind off the pain racking my stomach. A virus had left me weak-kneed and pathetic, sipping 7-Up instead of champagne. The week before, my mother had called to invite me to the holiday dinner, roast turkey, ham, mashed potatoes and gravy, sugared yams, chocolate pie. What about David? My mother sighed.
2: (sighs) You know how we feel about him.
0: Your dad wouldn't have it, even if I would.
1: How long had it been since I had seen her, my father, my grandmother, or brother? My thoughts of them came to me like distant memories, images from a photograph, mouths frozen in silent smiles, eyes peering into the dark lens of my face. My cousin Les and her husband Mark stopped by with gifts that Christmas Eve. Les sometimes seemed the only tie left, the lone thread tethering me to my family. David devoted a great deal of attention to Les, invited her to the parties, plied her with dope. She met his interest with casual disregard, took what she wanted, and left. I wondered if she knew the truth of my life, the stories that I could not tell her. I watched as she and Mark drank wine with David while I sat at the end of the couch, shivering with fever. I felt disoriented, as though I were separated from the others in the room, as though I were in a box of glass, cut off from their conversation and laughter. When I rose to use the bathroom, I saw David avert his eyes, not wanting to see me still in my robe, my hair unwashed, my colorless face. I closed the door and rested my head against the tub's cool porcelain. My resolution of fidelity had not brought the reward I had hoped for. Instead of drawing us closer, my refusal to play the role of communal concubine had only served to alienate David. If what I longed for was deference and compassion, what I'd gained was neglect and isolation. This is not my way, David had said, arguing that I was ruining what was good between us. If I thought I could change him, he said I was wrong. When I came back into the living room, Les and Mark were preparing to leave. As I slumped onto the couch, I saw in their eyes not just sympathy, but something else. Pity. I felt disgust for myself then. They had seen how David ignored me, had heard him say he'd be going out for the night. They may have wanted to gather me up and take me with them, feed me broth and sweet tea, but David stood between us, ushering them outside. I closed my eyes and heard the door latch, then the sound of David dropping change into his pocket, the slide of his wallet against his hip. I pretended to sleep when he walked past the couch, heard him hesitate for a moment at the door, then felt the cold rush of air from outside. When I opened my eyes, he was gone. Christmas lights flared against the frosted windows. I became aware of the songs coming over the FM station, songs of joy and celebration, God and angels, peace on earth and a star in the east. On the mantle, beneath the great horned owl David had mounted, I pegged two wool socks. I studied them for a while, wondering what I'd thought might appear in each, what bauble I might rise to Christmas morning. I wanted the sickness to be over, and the holiday too. I wanted nothing more to remind me of how alone I was, and how I'd chosen this path, and had no one to blame but myself. You made your bed. You lie in it. I whispered to myself. I looked at the owl, its outstretched wings so large they might cover me where I lay. I imagined the shadow of its body descending, the softness of its breast. I'd always loved the owls, suddenly there, looming white in the headlights, their solemn, monastic calling. And then I realized, I was angry that the anger had been there with me from the beginning when I had first seen the owl and realized that David had shot it, not for food or even for money, but because it came into his vision and he desired to possess it. I thought of my father whom I had never known to kill except for meat or protection, who came to the forest as though to worship I remembered the story he had once told me of the rare white raven he'd seen while working in the woods. I saw it there, among the others, he said, his voice still reverent. Like a ghost, only that once and never again. My father did not covet the raven, as some would have, because he understood, because he had taught me that some things are sacred, that some things are gifts. I studied the owl as though there were secrets it might tell me. I thought of the nights it had flown through, the distant stars that guided its flight. I thought of my father that night, he had seen the demon, how it was nothing he could make sense of, how it frightened him. He quit believing in light, in the solid shapes of walls, and began walking through the dark as though it were day, knowing what he may or may not see, a mere reflection of what he carried within himself, like memory. sin? Could he have known what journey lay before him? Did his vision warn him of our family's fragmentation, his daughter's rebellion, her desire to run and be lost and never be found? I wondered if he cared anymore, or if he simply believed my destiny, already sealed, with nothing he could do but wait. And what if my father had come for me there, where I lay on my couch, sick and exhausted? Would I have feared him as I always had, feared him for all that he did not do, but was capable of, as though in the repression of his rage lay the greatest threat of all? What if he had gathered me up in his arms and taken me home? I might have resisted him, just as I had my previous boyfriend, John, my pride and bitterness disallowing such rescue. Or maybe to have him come would have seemed such an act of uncompromised love that I would have welcomed his strength, his protection. I wanted to imagine the walls broken down between us, our mutual forgiveness, the coming days full of a new and tender awareness. I wanted to be only his daughter and not the daughter of Eve. But I knew that any freedom I might gain should I go back was only imaginary. The rules were still the same. An exchange of one prison another. Better that I suffer because of the choices I would made than to have no choices at all. That January, the cold came down hard, busting pipes, icing the streets. The snow settled into the draws, the twilight turning the mountains deep blue. As David had predicted, the coyote pelts were good, $70 for each hide brought in. There is so little I remember from that winter, so few images I can recall. David came off the road high on binny's, unable to sleep. When I stood beside him in front of the bathroom mirror, I was startled by his wild hair and beard, his dilated pupils, his wrinkled clothes. I got out the iron and did what I could, what I'd been taught to do for a man. creased the sleeves smooth the placket, give the collar some starch. It was my mother's map I follow now, what I did to impose order, to make sense of the course my life had taken. Hot water laundry, bleach-clean toilets, sheets snapped straight and folded tight around their mattress. I remember the strange weakness that took hold of me At work, my knees gave way as I stood over the deep fat fryers. My hips locked and I fell, momentarily paralyzed from the waist down. The doctors injected dye, took x-rays, performed their small surgeries. They showed me fine bits of cartilage and bills I could not pay. I remember the slick passage towards Seattle, the ice on Snoqualmie summit, the big rigs jackknifing around us, and David not slowing, but easing us through and up and over. You've got to keep power on the wheels. You just can't stop. Oh, I wondered if I would ever be able to do the same, forestall the fear, be sure of my direction. I knew the route we traveled by heart now, the way the city looked at dawn just coming into its light, the bay with its mist rising like steam, gray for that time and molten. In the motel, I would lie awake next to David, unable to sleep in daylight or dark, listening to the freeway traffic. I would think of the sex shops and prostitutes, lap dancers and pimps, For so long I had seen them as characters in a book Harmless, absurd, but now I was beginning to see Their bruised thighs and lips, the needle tracks and empty vials I saw the businessmen leave, tucking their shirts, straightening their ties While inside, the women squatted over their toilets and smoked, waiting for the next to arrive They seemed never to sleep, seldom cried, but they spoke of their children and drank and dabbed another layer of makeup beneath their eyes. How could I have been so blind? My life, it seemed, was falling away from me in great clumps. I had alienated my friends and family, when, after minor surgery on my knee, I didn't check in with my supervisor at the drive in, he replaced me with someone less likely to miss her scheduled work days. Suddenly, I had no money to buy food or gas, no money to make the payments on my car. I felt peeled, raw and wounded, relieved when David offered to cover my share of the rent and groceries until I could find another job. You can owe me, he said, fifty percent. I agreed, though I knew my salary would never match his and wondered how he thought I might pay. Those pieces of my life that had remained outside David's influence were now more tightly bundled. It was no longer my apartment, but his, not my black and white atop the chest, but his color TV. My bed had been knocked apart and put into storage. His, he said, was more comfortable. His dishes in the cupboards, his guns in the rack. I look back now and see how I was disappearing, one room at a time. But what I felt then was less fear than hope. I was seeing not dissolution, but domesticity. Even as I watched all my icons of independence vanish, I believed that what came to replace them was better somehow, more mature, what I should expect if I wanted a man in my life. And I believed that I did. I believed that what I wanted was David, not as I had known him, but as I believed he might yet be with me as his inspiration. Who of us then was the most desperate? For just as surely as David had built his prison around me, he immured himself to my keep. There was this fetter between us, this chain of servitude and responsibility. I cooked for him, cleaned and laundered. I counted the days of his halls across Washington. I curled my hair, put on lipstick, dressed in the outfits he favored, sat on the couch and awaited his return. None of it seemed to matter. Even our once lively conversations had become stilted, as though we had emptied ourselves into each other and now must face the limits of our kin. No more riddles, queries about origin, lessons on reading the trail, only silence and its undercurrent of rage. Our hours together were spent watching TV, reading. At some point during the evening, he would shower, put on the clothes I had folded, and then he would leave. Whenever I questioned David about his life away from me, he reacted with anger. He must have felt my pulling away, not from him, but from the life he had planned for me. The terms had always been clear. If I wanted him to stay, I would keep my mouth shut, do as he said. If David's frustration drove him to sullenness, I responded with exaggerated regard, stroking, pacifying, just as I had seen my mother mollify, take heed. But even the offering of my body was no longer enough to move David. He tensed away from me in bed and would not speak, so that I lay in the dark, cut off from the sound of him, the feel of him, and because my existence had become dependent on his acknowledgement and approval, it was as though I were no longer visible. I was the air around him, the sheets caress, the light falling in through the window. I felt my resolve weaken, the fear of rejection rise. I remember the panic of it still, David's turn away from me, the shunning, although I now understand his intention, to bring me to yet another level of subjugation, to destroy whatever scrap of self-will I still possessed. In the face of such rejection, that vow I had made to myself while at his aunt's house, snug beneath covers, verging on dreams, now seemed foolish and impossible. In desperation, I begged David to tell me what I could do to make him see me again. It was true. There had been things he wanted from me I would not give, had thought I could not give, but now I said yes, that there was nothing I would not do, or give, or let be done to me. I would obey. I was that kneeling girl, offering my life, my soul, every part of me to win salvation, to regain my patriarch's good grace. I had learned my lesson.
2: Please,
1: do not cast me out. David brought his eyes back to me then. His demands were not of the coarse nature that I thought they would be. He asked only this, that I trust him completely. I must be patient and prove that I trusted him by my continued silent presence, even though he would not say my name or even look at me. I cried and swore I would do these things I huddled against him in the darkness of our bed, felt the thinness of his back and legs, the rigid curve of his spine. I closed my eyes so that I could not see his face turned away from me. I folded my hands between my knees so they would not be wanton, would not implore. The next morning, he said, that this is how it would be, that I must not question, never ask where he was going or when he would return, but must remain constant and wait. I lowered my eyes, bowed my head. When the door had closed after him, I lay back down on the bed, believing myself unable to rise, to walk or even eat in the empty room, in the tattered gray light of pre-dawn. I thought of my mother in her worn robe, beginning to make the coffee, fry the eggs. My father, whom she would awaken and feed, whose clothes she would have pressed and laid out so that he had only to slip them on to be dressed and ready my brother still dreaming whatever dreams a good boy is given. The crack of bat against ball, the car he might someday own, the girl whose blonde hair fills his fingers. I thought of my grandmother, who would be awake, having slept the shallow sleep of the old, her lavender room, color of the flowers she loved, the lilacs that grew close by her door. Unreachable, that room, those people, I could never ask them to take me back, to accept me once again as their own. I had burned that bridge, and the gulf that stretched behind me could never be crossed.
0: You are listening to Storybound, and now for a short break. And now we return from our break.
1: Did I believe that I deserved this final subservience, dues owed for the years I had fought to control my own existence? Punishment, after all, was my familiar, my most expected return. I look back and see how the rhythms of my life have followed this pattern. Rebellion, punishment, submission, and then the cycle repeating. I would strike out, expecting the reprisal, perhaps even bringing it on. Always I had understood the gravity of my actions, and always I knew what my actions would bring. The belt across my bottom, the switch across my legs, the open hand, eventually the groundings and loss of my already limited freedom, the threat of eternity in hell. But the discipline and the warnings I had heard all my life had not had their desired effect. I seemed never to learn. Could it have been then, That even as David punished me, drove me toward what he believed might be my point of breaking, I was preparing myself for battle, protecting that part of myself that yet remained outside his control. Some fragment I had thrown to the sky, where it floated above me, quiet and invisible. Closed in behind locked doors and shaded windows, I drifted, aware only of the moments when I woke, then wished myself back into sleep. There were sounds outside that filtered into me, traffic, the high laughter of children walking home from school. But the sounds were dreams, and I liked them that way, let them weave into the deafness of my slumber. Escape, denial, depression, all of these, of course. But something else. I was resting, gathering my strength. When the loop of outside noise began to repeat itself, became something familiar, I realized I had slept through the beginnings and endings of several days. I rolled to my side, let my eyes focus on the simple shapes, the complex shadows of the dresser, the closet, the floor. There was nothing in the room that might hurt me, nothing except the blade of my own shame, my weakness and despair. Instead of dread, what I felt was a calm that I had never expected. Released from its constant vigil to defend, my mind had emptied itself, and what came back into me was a clarity so intense I could taste it, see its colors, icy and blue and deeply translucent, like the water come off the high mountains. As a child, I had mimicked my father as he knelt beside the spring's course, dipped his hand, and drank. The cold had shot my teeth to numbness, but when I raised my head, the trees were distinctly drawn, newly made, strokes of charcoal against the sun's unbearable brightness. Is this what my father had been looking for? all those years before, when he had gone into the shelter, denied his body its sustenance.
3: To see things more clearly,
1: he'd said, to see what must be done. All that he had taken with him on his journey had been pulled from that brook, filling enough jars to keep him alive for forty days and forty nights until his blood ran pure as the snow chilled water. I remembered on one of our last hunts together, how my father had led my brother and me into the forest, marched us for hours along skitter trails, across the ridges and down the draws of the country he had logged for cedar. I'd been pleased to be in his company, believing we were making headway, working toward common ground. I meant to show him what I was made of, prove to him my stamina, demonstrate the accuracy of my eye. What came instead was the moment he had planned all along. My brother and I had not been paying attention, he said, had been depending on him for our sense of direction. There was a lesson we must learn. Now, he said, pointing at me. You will lead us out. How could I? Walking the long miles in, I had noted only the lean of his back, the easy gait that carried him effortlessly over logs and through the thick buckbrush and vine maple. I had not marked the dog-legged red fur, slashed a bee in the bark of pine, bled the carmine vein of wild plum. Clouds melded the sky to metal. There was no sun to guide my way. We wandered for miles, my father pretending the role of meek and willing follower, while all the time I inwardly raged. Finally, as the pewter sky darkened to lead, I turned to him in defeat.
2: I don't know where we are, I said. I don't know which direction is right.
1: He'd only nodded, moved toward a log where we might all rest.
3: You look down too much. You haven't been watching
1: pointed the ember of his cigarette toward the horizon. You've got to see it all.
3: Forward, backward, sides. You get lost in here. It'll be a long time before someone finds you.
1: I'd lowered my eyes, ashamed, fearful that he might see what I was thinking. You could.
3: You could find me. You won't always have the sun, or even stars. You have to make your own map, memorize it.
1: He rose, stretched the stiffness from his back.
3: Now, let's go home.
1: And we followed him, my brother and I, filling his largeness before us, knowing we'd been lost and then found, each of us full of anger and gratitude, love and hate, and an awareness that wherever we walked in the world we would carry this truth within us. I lay in my bed and heard my father's voice and the voices of others come back to me. The same voices that had promised consequence and retribution that had prophesied my harvest of pain. What the voices offered now was not condemnation, but the harsh encouragement that was also my legacy, the rough prod that had boosted me up from the playground when the bullying knocked me down, that had made me despise self-pity and believe that I could withstand anything with the sheer will of my body and mind. It was my grandmother's voice, Pesky and absolute, jolting me from morning dreams because there were chores to be done, joshing me from bouts of poutiness with a chuck under the chin. Possum, possum, coo coon, she would chide, and I knew this meant that I was puttin' on like a possum, sold up, only pretending injury. It was my father's voice, unmoving in the face of my announcement that I could not walk another yard or stand another allergy shot or produce the answer to yet another of his obstinate questions. Yes? He'd say. You can! And that was the end of it, and I would go and do what I thought I could not do, and I would feel strong. It was my mother's voice, when ill with fever, I had fainted in the hallway. Kim, what's the matter with you? You get up from there! She demanded, enraged by her own fear. And because she believed that I could rise and walk, I did. There was some of this yet in me, composed of a faith I could not unlearn, and a peevish belief in my own survival and something else, my inherent willingness to disobey. I had suffered the consequences of disaffirming the authority of the church and my father. I had been shunned and shamed, prayed for and denounced. Always I believed I could survive. That one fragment of will I had kept hidden from David came back into me, lodged itself in my breast. I saw clearly that things could not continue this way, but I had little sense of how they might change. Before, my boyfriends and I had broken up, given back class rings, and sobbed our regrets for a night or two. But I knew I could not simply walk away from this. All I knew to do was confront, and that is what I planned, knowing that even as I rose from my bed and began gathering my clothes, I was risking something I could not name but recognized. The rage held deep, boiling, boiling. I did not doubt that I could run from David. I did not doubt that he would find me.
2: I know it's about time I gotta face those demons I ain't running scared No more, no more, no more lying Gotta face the truth Oh, you reap what you sow
0: This story was an excerpt read by Kim Barnes from her memoir, Hungry for the World. The music for this episode was composed by Pretty Gritty and Brian Dast. The song Running Scared was written and performed by Sarah Wolf and Blaine Heineken, musical duo Pretty Gritty, whose music can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to stream your music. Just type in Pretty Gritty. This episode featured voice acting from Camille Rose Perry, Gary Sandelin, and Peter Hope. Thank you to Tim Carplus at Yellow Room Recording. We also want to thank Jess Fuller from Mountain Man Music for engineering the recording with Kim. Storybound is mixed, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lithub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. Want to tell us what you think of the show? Find us on Twitter at storyboundpod, or you can tweet at me directly at judebrewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, we'll hear a story from Jack Reesider with original composition provided by Shane Brown. Here we are at Dreamtree Studios Northwest, and I'm sitting here with... I'm Brian Das, Sarah Wolf.
3: Blaine Heineken, psych, Blaine Heininen. <laughs> <laughs> and together they
0: all make uh, Pretty Gritty, and they did the score for this episode. So we're going to sit down and talk about uh, how this episode was made. So I'm sitting down with uh, Sarah and Blaine of Pretty Gritty, or Sarah, Blaine, and Brian. How do you all want me to actually introduce you all in terms of... How do you
4: Pretty want? Gritty and Brian? Pretty,
3: Pretty Gritty, gritty and, with and Brian Dast, and, like... Uh, like jerry douglas like oh yeah the feature, the allison Cross union
4: station
0: yeah, pretty feet. gritty and brian yeah. i'm sitting down with pretty gritty feet period brian dast <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you>. <laughs> <laughs> we're so pretentious <laughs> which by the way i have an intro where i actually recorded i said uh I, I said very seriously, Blaine Heineken. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to include. I've been it or trying not. to
3: get some of that beer money, man. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I just legally change my name. Yeah. Get some sponsorships.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, no. I'm actually just very curious. I think just this is sort of a broad question, but I really am curious. That first day in the studio, before well, you were in this. St- y'all were in the studio for like two days before I came in. I right? think
4: you came in like. At the end of the second day.
0: What was the, I guess, the wake-up point? What was that first
3: day like approaching the episode?
4: It was was like mapping out themes, I would say, mostly.
3: Well, we listened through the whole story. Mm -hmm. Like, we'd already done that individually and then just kind of did it together, taking more notes and then just... I think maybe the idea was we just sat and thought, okay, how much of of the same idea is everybody having in certain spots? And a lot of it was that way to where Mm -hmm. I could just sit in the corner and not have to do it. Like, I was like, I'm just... Gonna just creep, fade to black. I'm gonna go in the corner here and watch these two brains and be like, "Yeah," and then we should do this and do that. I'm like, "Uh huh, yeah." I'm basically cheating on their test. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what I got too. <laughs> you were the yes man, though. Although yeah, I always like, remember. Yeah, no, this, <laughs> is how, this is how I I get by, man. Thirty-seven years. But what about
4: the? <laughs> bom, 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 well, that was bom, fun. Yeah, the whole bom, like that part. Well, that's
3: yeah. just you can't keep the metal I mean, in for so long. You know, like <laughs> it has to that come out like the cracking every like three hundred years. Made
4: so worth his however many hours you were here
3: <laughs>
5: yeah yeah but that first part was really just like blaine said just sitting there listening we each had a piece of paper and a pencil we took notes and we shared right. and we notes. had a big counter on the screen so we could see time and we just wrote down like where we thought music would help and where we didn't want any mm-hmm. music and mm-hmm. if we wanted a certain what, what theme to come back. yeah music. what kind of mood we wanted yeah.
2: yeah
3: and realized we need a lot of those <laughs> we were like wow this We've well, got some yeah. music. We've got some sounds. Right. We need more.
4: <laughs> the cool thing, though, right. was was realizing the benefits of Omnisphere, oh, and yeah. not having to like acoustically yeah. record like everything ourselves. Right. Yeah,
5: Omnisphere know? is a is a software synth thing that we were using for a lot of drones and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: so. yeah it ended up being this. I mean, it was a. Really lovely tool. It was yes. so funny how quickly you could come back, like, oh, no, this is an Omnisphere moment.
3: This yep. is what's, <laughs> that's totally. right. Yep. A0076, Demonic
2: ghost clap. Demonic growl. <laughs> yeah.
5: like. when
0: we spent most of that first day, like, going through settings on
5: the yeah. Omnisphere and mm-hmm. finding cool stuff, you know.
0: You know, and something I've learned, at least with this first season, was uh, in terms of prep, because, you know, I I basically gave you all just the raw audio mm-hmm. with no voice actors no sound <laughs> effects it was kind of the worst way to throw someone into something and no text to go off of like did that work to your benefit or no or was it the tough was it i don't know
4: i don't know either because we yeah. it was really fun like kind of like riffing off of each other like i'd have an idea or something and then he'd be like yeah blah, you know and then kind of building together maybe if we had too rigid of like a thing to go off of then so
3: I would ask how was that for you not have, yeah walking like, into walking into going like where... okay what kind of shitstorm storm am I gonna be in
4: yeah before like, walking in the door what
2: were you thinking how do I know it's just not like
3: 30 minutes of glockenspiel <laughs> or, or like vibroslap <laughs> bang just like that's it like yeah guys I'm really not feeling that like slide thing. whistle yeah. like a bunch of like old old trend like RCA radio Like mm-hmm. and you guys
0: are all really enthusiastic yeah. about yeah. it like yeah, how yeah, do I yeah. shoot yeah. them down at
3: we're point. practically giving them away <laughs> like
5: yeah. Just all three of us around one microphone, with, all with slide whistles. Yes. Yeah. That would
4: have been amazing. Why didn't we do that? I don't know. Can we, can we
5: all
3: right, cut, cut. Let's Rewind. go back and do yeah. it again.
0: Can we do another that, one? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a really good way to put me in an uncomfortable position where I was like, how do I? We should have hey done I, that as
3: like people. a dummy track. Just been like, yeah, this is what we got so far. I know. And then it's just like <laughs> chuckling and the slide whistle. And then he's like, great.
2: Yeah. Actually, we guys, we like got, they anecdote- pulled the plug on us so yeah i'm gonna
3: take this episode somewhere else (laughs) i was
0: um i was surprised like i was extremely surprised to walk in and like there was such a such a variety in the sound um and you'd already kind of found it that way of like, oh, now that I'm this far in the episode, I realize you need to have some of these like repeating elements and find out sort of these these themes or these motifs, mm-hmm. right um, in certain moments. So I was really neat it was really neat to walk in and see that all happen because yeah, you had never scored anything right mm-hmm. like before this. No, yeah. I
5: have uh, I have done some, a little bit. I did some children's videos and some commercials. Okay. But it's been a long time since I did any of that kind of work.
0: Sure. So what I'm also curious too is like, when did you discover that Running Scared was going to be the song? When did you know that? And what was, was there
4: another? Decided bef- like yeah, before and we decided before we walked into the studio that that was a good one.
3: Yeah. Or, like oh two... you
4: mean in the episode to use that as a theme
3: correct oh, oh that
4: was day two day two yeah because yeah. that's when we realized okay if we're mm-hmm. gonna record a bunch of random things mm-hmm. that's gonna take a long time and that might you know like so brian was like well we have this sort of theme song at the beginning and at the end what if we just pull from that theme and sort of record like a uh you know, different
5: versions. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, re-recorded
3: it in snippets and made different like variations yeah. of that song. So we mm-hmm. could
4: take we could, have we could take just the, the drums, or we could take just the guitar, or mm-hmm. we could take you know little. Yeah, we kind of made it, it
5: um, modular, like we bounced out the stems of of all this, and like we made it. Well, originally I was hoping that you had the multi-tracks. Yeah, but I didn't have the stems. to those. Yeah. But we didn't have them, so we kind of recreated it with hand drums bass guitar, a couple other things. Mm-hmm. All the
3: way down to like, well yeah, using like the key of the song and even like yeah, same for tempo, all the other same, key. Vibes same everything vibes yeah. and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it's all in the same key.
5: And then just uh made a mix of it and then broke it out into stems, so the drums were one, the bass was one, the guitars were one, and that way we could take them and use them like modular pieces. Mm-hmm. And just if there's a somewhere where we needed to build some tension, we might just have the drums play for 8 bars and then yeah. have the bass come in for 8 bars and like something where you're feeling that pulse, but it's not like the whole song all at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? We
3: basically took all 33 minutes and turned it into free advertising for one song of ours <laughs> okay. and just pound it in your head, and you don't know why this melody is in there for the rest of the show, and then you're like, I don't know why, but I keep humming this song. I got to find it. Oh, and then you can buy it on iTunes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the pod glomer a sonic universe.